When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post Senate act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. And welcome to Awesome Etiquette, where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your etiquette questions on not eating when others do, invitation woes, extending a favor once in a while, not every week, and dressing up for grandma, plus your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript segment on Emily Post's birthday. Coming up... Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be produced in Burlington, Vermont by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. Yeah, you are. And it's so good to be with you today. It is good to be... Wait, oh, you meant them. I thought you were talking about me because we've been apart for a week. We have. (laughs) And I haven't had a chance to in person look you in the eye and wish you happy birthday. Well, thank you very much because it uh, it was a delightful birthday. (laughs) You were not in Vermont? No, I was not in Vermont. I was down in Texas, actually, uh, celebrating with a friend that I met through work when I was flown out to Omaha. Um, I made friends with some of the gals that hosted me, and one of them lived in Texas, and we always said that I would come and visit, and sure enough, I had worked down in Texas, so I decided to extend and do my 35th birthday with my friend Morgan and her family down in Texas. It was wonderful. (laughs) As things get chillier and chillier in Vermont (laughs) and I start hearing about people heading south, I I have these little moments, these little (laughs) twinges where I say to myself, I'm going to be sitting here and frost is going to be on the ground and friends and family will be enjoying warmer climes. Hey, there is another birthday uh, occurring this week. I was always very glad to be so close to her. Emily Post. Absolutely. Happy birthday. On the 27th. It's... Not a President's Day. It's not an etiquette day or something like that. But she is the the founder of our tradition, the tradition we all get to participate in. So it's nice to, to mark the day and think about her. Absolutely. She came into this world and lo and behold, a fifth generation family business came about afterwards. <laughs> It always amazes me that that book she wrote in 1922 had such a lasting impact. I Every day when we walk into the office or when we're thinking about it or when I hear it in an episode of some show I'm watching, it blows my mind. <laughs> me too. And I hope that our audience will indulge us. We want to return to the topic of Emily Post in the postscript yes. and explore a little bit what it was about her that gave her a clarity of vision about human interaction that really has been so lasting. I think it's a remarkable story. It'll be a real treat to talk about Emily as a person as opposed to just the work that she has delivered that that we clearly talk about all the time. We do. We talk about what she said and what she did, but it's nice to also remember who she was. 
Indeed. But first, let's get to some questions. Let's do it. Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions on how to behave. And if you have a question for us, you can email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Leave us a voicemail at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or hit us up on Twitter and Facebook. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette so we know you want your question on the show. Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, Mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? (laughs) StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. (laughs) After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. This question is about a not-hungry newbie. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I'm not sure if this really falls into your realm, but if it does, I would love to get your guidance. I have recently started taking a new medicine for ADHD that dramatically curbs my appetite. Because of it, I often don't feel hungry at lunch, so much so that even thinking about eating is really unappealing. The reason I've just started the medicine, apart from the actual ADHD, is because I just started my first full-time job out of university, working at a company where our office is open concept. Everyone usually eats lunch at the communal table together as a little break, and sometimes I feel like eating, but other times I really don't. Some of my colleagues have asked me why, when they notice I'm not eating, and I've tried to dodge it a little, saying things like, I'm not too hungry yet, or I had a big breakfast. I don't want to get into the specifics for why I'm not hungry at lunch. I tend to get peckish around 4 and eat a normal-sized dinner and snack post-work. But people prod nearly every time I choose to sit at the table with the group while not eating or only eat something small like a banana. Do you have any ideas or tips for how to best deal with this? Ideally, I'd like to say something once so that people don't ask again, but also not make a huge scene about it. I've told one colleague and explained to her the whole medicine side effects aspect, but it's also not something I really want to share with my boss who also eats with us. 
not-so-hungry newbie. Newbie, you literally just described my eating habits. Yes, you did. <laughs> it was like... And the funny thing is, is even with, with my family who I eat with at lunch or who I sit with at lunch sometimes, when I do choose to eat, um, like we all got pho the other day and I ended up getting pho too. And my dad was like, you're eating lunch today. You don't typically eat lunch. And I was like, yeah. It's funny. People do... They People comment on things and it's not always fun and it's not always what you want. And there's sometimes, especially if you don't want to share particular aspects of this subject, then it makes you even a little more heightened and anxious. Like, will the next question make me have to answer something I don't want to answer? Mm -hmm. But I think Newbie is doing all the things I would advise, which is saying things like, I eat lunch sometimes. I'm just not always hungry. My line that I go to Newbie is, you know, I really try to listen to my body and only eat when I'm really hungry. So I'm just going to sit here with my tea or something like that. I know you said you have a banana in front of you sometimes or a smaller snack. It surprises me that people are still commenting when that's what you're eating. Although I know you get it. People say things like, is that all you're going to eat? And you just say, yes, it's all I'm going to eat. Or when they say, how come you never eat? I'm just really, you know, I'm not always hungry and I try to just eat when I'm hungry. It really works for me. And that's it. You can just leave it at that. If they prod further, you just say, no, it's really that I'm not hungry and I, I don't like to eat when I'm not hungry. I also want to acknowledge, newbie, that when you're not such a newbie, you might find that as relationships grow, you're more comfortable talking to people about the reason why you don't have an appetite at lunch. And it's really up to you how much you want to share and how deep you want to get into that conversation, depending on how relationships change and evolve over time. Newbie, we hope that this helps, and we hope that you enjoy your food-free lunches. Lunchtime is another time to practice good eating habits. Usually, you're mighty hungry by this time. Today, you feel fine. Our next question is titled, Double Booking. Dear Dan and Lizzie, I recently became addicted to your podcast and I'm working my way through the archives, so I apologize if a similar question has already been asked. Back in May, a friend from college was trying to organize a night for our friends to go out to dinner together. While there were many weekends my husband and I had open throughout the summer, everyone else was busy. The dinner was scheduled for the end of September. Fast forward to the beginning of September. My brother made reservations for him, my family, and my parents to go out to dinner for my mother's birthday that same evening. I knew I couldn't ask him to reschedule because there was a particular event at the restaurant that was only happening that night. I sent a kind and apologetic message to my friend, canceling dinner with the group. I know she was kidding, but she really did believe that the right thing would have been to tell my family I already had plans and couldn't join them. I love my friends, and we've been friends for 15 years, but we only see each other a couple times a year and keep in touch mainly through social media. My husband and I have three kids under three, and my mother helps us with them in some capacity almost every day. We would not have survived these last few years without her. I know there is no way I can ever repay her for everything she has done for us, so I feel it's important to honor her whenever I can. Still, I did make plans with my friends prior to the plans with my family. Was I wrong in canceling my plans with my friends? Picking favorites. 
Oh, picking favorites. This is a tough situation. Can we just like totally acknowledge that for a minute? This you were put in such a difficult place. And I don't think you're necessarily picking favorites. No. I think this is a, a a difficult place that emerged for reasons that you laid out pretty clearly. That there was a group of people getting together. They picked a weekend ahead of time, and something came up that made this particular night at this particular restaurant the choice that your family made for your mother's birthday. Mm-hmm. These things happen. They do. From a technical standpoint, I want to honor the point of etiquette that you're aware of that you're bringing up, which is that usually you try to honor commitments that you've made. You don't usually cancel plans that you've made with one person when something – and I'm going to put air quotes that no one can see around it (laughs) – uh, better comes along. And in this case, I I, I want to put those air quotes around better because – Life happens, and life happens awkwardly at times, and this is one of those moments where something better might be something that you have for a reason like this person has helped me through three years of raising children in a way that really demands acknowledging, and she's my mother, Yeah, that this is a substantial and significant reason why you might cancel one plan and make another. This is not better. This is, like you said, significant. And the the importance of the event that was organized after you had already made plans really is something to take into account in this. And your friend, I would guess, would completely understand because I think a lot of friends have families that have similar things happen. Mom's birthday becomes a bigger commitment or a more significant commitment or a more necessary positive obligation. I don't think obligations always have to be negative or feel like something you don't want to go do. Um, mom's birthday came up and this is really just a rock and a hard place. And my only suggestion might have been to have called your friend who was hosting this dinner. That way she could hear the, the, she could hear in your voice that you're caught between a difficult situation because y'all have planned to do this and it's been on the books for a long time and it's a really important friendship gathering But then you get the family pulling in, and that's tough. And I think your friend would understand that if she could have heard that. I think maybe a message wasn't the best medium. I I don't know. I like where we're going with this because we're starting to get to the etiquette of how you change a plan if you have to. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I jumped ahead. (laughs) I think it's where the, the heart of the advice for this question really lies. And I think you're right. The more personal you can make that message, the better. Mm -hmm. It gives you that fighting chance. Let them hear the tone of your voice. Let them, if you can, see your face. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Not always possible. You mentioned you connect through social media with this group a lot. You might take this opportunity to communicate in a way that's not just social media. You might use this as an opportunity to touch base with everyone who's going to be in that group. Let them know that you were really looking forward to seeing them, that this wasn't a choice that you made easily. And it doesn't need to be all about explaining yourself. It can really be about still wanting to connect, still wanting to take the opportunity to touch base and let people know what a good time you hope they have and how you wish you could be with them. Well, and like the mom's birthday comes up is like in and of itself enough. Like the fact that she also happens to be an amazing mom who has made your life really possible in a lot of ways, it sounds like, this this past three years. That's all well and good and amazing, and I'm glad you have that connection, but that doesn't have to be the reason that it makes it. It's okay if it's just it's mom's birthday and that's really important to our family and that's okay in and of itself. I agree. And I think a point of etiquette that we might also drive to is that you don't have to offer that explanation. Sometimes something comes up that you're not going to be as comfortable sharing or just isn't it it doesn't work in the same way to give the details about the other thing that you're going to be doing. (laughs) But in this particular case, I think it helps. It's going to help soften the blow and 
help it be better received. I, I'm left with one other thought here. Please. Was this really the only night the brother could schedule this thing at this restaurant? He is said there, there was something going on at the restaurant. And I'm assuming that's something that m- mom is connected to and that there's a reason the family really wants to do it then. But the the one other place I might go with this would be to talk with your brother yeah. about doing something with mom earlier in the day or if well, there's a that... different event at a different restaurant. If it, it, yeah. Maybe that's the birthday weekend and this really is the thing. But the only thing... there was a little flag that went off in my head that no, said, Maybe had, the brother could get involved. Here I had also. that question too: of Could you do drinks with the friends ahead of time and then go to the dinner with mom? Could you get together at even just the host's house with just the host earlier in the day and then go to dinner with mom, or come over afterwards for drinks after dinner? I mean, I just you, as the listener, as the person in it, will know what the parameters are, what's possible, drive times, everyone's schedules, all of that. But Your is kids. Yeah, is there something in there that could work out so that you could see everybody that same day? That would be another kind of contingency plan to go on for it. Picking favorites, we think that you were definitely, as I've said, caught between a rock and a hard place, and I think you did the best that you could, and hopefully friends and family will both understand. They're swell people. All of them. They do the kind of things you expect of your friends. Friends. That's it. They're the most dependable friends I have. Yeah, they sure are. Dear Awesome Etiquette, I have a coworker who does not have transportation to and from work. Usually, she depends on another coworker and close friend to take her home. However, the two days that he is off are not the same days that she is. Therefore, she always has to rely on another coworker to drive her home. For the past few weeks, it has been me. I thought it would be a one or two times affair. However, she is now asking me to drive her home almost every week. While her apartment is not too far out of my route home, I still feel burdened with the task. How do I politely tell her that I don't want to do it anymore? Richard. Richard, I think a lot of people deal with similar situations to yours. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people get caught in this place of a one-time favor somehow turning into a routine and nobody really asked for that to happen. Nobody explained that was what could happen. And I think there are a couple things that you can do depending on your comfort levels and and the person. When Remember, we love putting that platinum rule into effect. Think about the other person. But I would say that you could very simply just say no when she asks. Sorry, I can't tonight. It's not hard, but it is hard. And it's funny how as you steal yourself to turn someone down for what is a favor that you no, technically you could do, but you don't want to do. It's amazing how much we often feel the need to make that hard or a difficult no or like explain it a lot. And I think you can just diffuse a lot of this by making it simple, a really pleasant, oh, I'm really sorry, I can't tonight. Because one thing that that will make the person who's requesting these rides realize is, oh, I haven't set up the expectation that this is going to happen every time. They've banked on each time they ask in the moment that you say, yes, I can. 
And I think that sometimes when you have that moment of, no, I'm sorry, I can't tonight, it reminds them, oh, wait, I've been just expecting that they're going to say yes. And now I'm in trouble because they said no and I didn't make a backup plan. And sometimes just a very clear no does get people thinking about, oh, wow, if this isn't available to me, what are my other options? I think another thing that you could say is to bring it up more explicitly. Kelsey, I noticed you're asking for a ride each night after our shifts. And while I can help out in a pinch, I can't do rides each night. And I just wanted to make that clear. I kind of like that. Yeah. I, it softens it for sure, right? It, it does. And and I was thinking about this. And oftentimes, I think you're right. One break in the pattern can be enough to disrupt the expectation, I think that oftentimes just finding out a way to say no once is enough to get someone thinking that I can't depend or rely on this every time. But I was thinking about the nature of that no (laughs) and thinking that if if there is a way you can deliver it with enough warning that someone can make an alternative plan. You mentioned the platinum rule, really thinking about how – it affects the other person. How they would want to be treated that maybe having that day to prep, even even just mentally to think about who they're going to ask instead. Yeah. If the, Even if they don't make the plan to ask ahead of time, it just it gives someone just that much more time to, to make that adjustment. I would say that it is the more courteous and thoughtful approach of the two. Um, I think what's really hard is people get to this place where they feel taken advantage of and there's some kind of need to like and I'm not saying our listener Richard is doing this, but there's some kind of need to almost put that back on the other person. And you want to be really careful. Um, So even if you went the short route, the no needs to be really positive. No, sorry, I can't tonight. Like a really friendly no, as opposed to a no, I can't. What you going to do about it? You know what I mean? Like that's like you don't want to be putting in that kind of attitude to any of it. So something that's occurring to me even as we're talking about this okay. is that I think that it's easier to deliver the quick I'm sorry I can't do it earlier on. Yeah, oh my gosh, yes. Before the pattern okay. has really been established. Good point. Once what you're really addressing is the the pattern that's emerged, not just your willingness to do it tonight. Yes. That there starts to be a little bit more responsibility on you to to acknowledge that and make that part of the way you deliver the no. Right. If you've been doing this for three weeks, there's a social agreement that's emerged without the question ever being asked. And we, we know that's what you're upset about. But you got to recognize that you've played a part in that at this point. When you're two nights, three nights into one week of this, that's the sorry I can't tonight is pretty easy. But you go beyond that first week, I think you're in the in what Dan's talking about where it's really important to have that. Kelsey, I've noticed you've been asking for a ride each night's conversation. We really think it's up to you to decide where you are in the development of that social expectation in terms of how much you want to address that expectation as part of your no. But there's certainly both options. And you're also – we want to acknowledge well within your purview to set boundaries that you're comfortable with. And um, I also want to take just a moment to remind everyone out there who's – So fortunate as to receive a favor, particularly a favor on a regular basis, the importance of a thank you, the importance of an acknowledgement of that favor, whatever form that acknowledgement takes can really go a long way and is much appreciated. Absolutely. Our next question is titled Dress Up for Grandma. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. My grandmother is turning 90 years old this year, and my family is throwing her an evening dinner party with all 52 of her descendants at a local hotel restaurant. 
I have volunteered to do much of the legwork for this task. Recently, I read an article you published stating paper invitations should be used if you want attendees to take the party seriously. I was previously using social media to share the details, so I had invitations printed with the key party information. However, I'm concerned with how some of my family will dress. Most of them are pretty casual and prefer t-shirts and jeans to a button-up and khaki pants. Is it in poor taste to print an insert that provides the menu, other key events that week, it will be Thanksgiving weekend, and lists the attire there? I don't want to offend anyone, but I want the event to be nice for my grandmother. We're going to take family photos and would like everyone to wear nice clothes and not a t-shirt. Is there a way to write this on an invitation that doesn't come across as snobby or bossy? Thanks, M. M. first of all, Great work. I want to congratulate you on both taking on these tasks, helping get your family together, all 52 descendants. That is amazing for honoring your grandmother and for wanting to make it a nice event, wanting to get a family photo that will become a memorable, keepsake, memento reminder of this effort and this incredible woman. We have done that in our family. Sometimes jeans and T-shirts were worn. Sometimes we were all dressed up and it was a real thing. And I got to say, both versions have been wonderful. But I think that if you would like people to dress up, if the idea is we're going to try to take a really nice family photo for grandma, people are going to get behind that. So how do you do that? You've done some good work already. I love that you found our advice useful to use a printed invitation to start to set the tone for the event. I think that's a great place to start. It's going to help develop this discussion that you're going to continue to have moving forward. Can I add to that that I also like the fact that social media is being used too if that happens to be a very good communication tool. Mm -hmm. I like the fact that you were able to marry both. You definitely want to continue to use every tool at your disposal to get the word out (laughs) and to build some consensus around what it is that you're shooting for. And to that end, I suggest a couple of things. You want to find some allies. You want to identify some other influencers, decision makers, we call them in business. But in families, they're just the people that have sway, sway in a household, the people that will (laughs) um, help you get this message out. And oftentimes word of mouth is the best way to do that. Pick up the phone. Give a call to – The brother, the sister, the aunt, the uncle, the engaged sibling who's going to be able to to rally the troops and get people there and get them looking sharp and and, and make them feel good about it. Make them appreciate that this is something you're doing for grandma, but maybe also for the whole family, that maybe part of the way to communicate that is to let people know that you want to get everybody a copy of this picture, that you hope to see it in lots of houses moving forward. But our poor M is dealing with 52 people. That might be like 20 different families to call or reach out to. Like, is that is that really the the idea? This is why I think she's going for the insert method. Do you think the insert method is good? I think the insert method is good. I There's do nothing <laughs> etiquette wrong about having an attire mention. I love the fact that the insert will include more than just, please wear nice clothes for grandma's dinner at the hotel. I think that having some other key elements to the week and weekend help make this a really helpful document and not, it won't come across as stuffy or pushy. It'll come across as really, really helpful. No, you want to be a good host. You want to give your guests enough information to attend well. And part of that is to set a clear expectation. I do like the idea of connecting it to the photograph. And 
frankly, if you are aware there's a history, there's a tradition that people don't get dressed up and you're hoping people do something different, you really want to be explicit about that. You want to be sure you get them that information. And the invitation is the first touch. That's the place where you're really setting the tone for the event, setting the expectations. I like the way Lizzie Post mentions that social media as well. If there is a event website, any anything else that you're using to get information out – I also like that word of mouth. I think it's it's oh, yeah. helpful to keep reinforcing that message. And Well, think about it. With the insert, you're giving people the paper thing that can hang on their fridge, right, mm-hmm. that a lot of people respond to. With the word of mouth, you're touching base. You're giving them that softer, um, that more connective reminder about it. And then the social media gives them the in-the-pocket access to the info that they need. One, two, three touches is oftentimes something that marketers look for to really secure someone's awareness of an event. (laughs) We wish you the best of luck. Herding cats, getting 52 family members together, and we know that it's going to work out really well, and we want to wish your grandmother a very happy birthday. Happy birthday, Grandma. I think we've got a pretty nice family. A fine, thoughtful family. Thank you for your questions, and please send us your updates and comments to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a message at 802-858-KIND, that's 802-858-5463, or hit us up on Twitter and Facebook. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette so we know you want your question on the show. Each week, we like to hear your thoughts about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. So our first question comes from Catherine, and it's in regards to um, a question that we answered about, I I believe it was a party folks were being invited to, and they were being asked to pay for their plate at the party. And it was more along the lines of like a birthday party, a real kind of very common social gathering. And uh, Catherine writes, Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I was stumped by your response for this question. I'm not quite sure what the difference between chipping in a little— financially, we mean, and something like a potluck would be. Occasionally, I host murder mystery parties, and you you sometimes have to buy the characters at these things. So Catherine's saying, and to buy the characters can get expensive. When I've done these parties with friends, I've often asked, and they have often offered to pay to help pitch in. It makes it much easier overall. Maybe they're having a high-end chef come in, and it's like going out to dinner. I don't think I'd normally ask friends to pay to come over, but is this much different than asking them to bring food or drinks? Catherine. Catherine brings up a really good point. What is the difference between asking someone to bring a contribution and asking someone to just pay? And there's definitely a mentality out there that sees that, but there is a fine difference. And and I think the subtlety here is is what helps uh, carve our advice around it. If you ask someone to pay. First of all, on the one hand, you could just say it's $50 for tonight's dinner if you want to come, but you as the host might really run into problems with this. Um, Asking your guests to pay cash to attend your party is just not something we look at as considerate to your guests. Whereas asking them to contribute to the meal is kind of a very community-based 
standard in our culture. So what's the difference? So the difference is is that when you ask someone to bring cash, you are assigning a value immediately to something. When you ask them to bring a dish, it's up to them to figure out something that's going to work within their budget and fit what they've committed to bringing. And that gives them more latitude. When you say just bring $20 cash or just bring $50 cash, that can really be something that people can't do. But bring a plate of cookies. Hey, wait a second. I've got the ingredients for that. Or bring a salad. My garden was over flowing, I'm able to do that. You, you give people more latitude to figure out what's going to work for them, their budget, their comfort levels. When you talk about a murder mystery party, that's a thing. That is something where um, sort of kits are purchased and the experience is one that you might you might make that something that people buy into. And you might send out to a list of 30 people and say, I'd love to throw a murder mystery party here. It's $25 a character. It's going to be from this time to this time this weekend. Would love to have you make it. Let me know if you'd like if you'd like to join and we'll assign you a character. or We'll help you get a character. That's kind of like more of an event type of party where there's there's this thing around it. But there's a lot of dicey territory in when it comes to what can a host really ask for guests to contribute to and participate in. And when should they be hosting? I got into a, a long discussion not too long ago with someone who was quite upset that the host for a party had not only asked them to bring some food but had been very specific about exactly what that food should be. And this person started to feel like they were being asked to pay for the party. And it, it, it was definitely that that subtle gray area territory where – their participation and contribution stopped being something that they saw themselves in and they started to feel like an agent of the host who wasn't necessarily doing their job. So I'm listening to you mine this territory (laughs) and thinking to myself about a very recent example where someone was trying to navigate that gray territory and ended up giving offense. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So it is something to be really delicate with. Um, And you do, as Dan's saying here with this example, want to make sure that there's some kind of choice on the part of the guest who you're asking to bring things to help make your party happen. Dan, what's our next piece of feedback? Our next comment comes from Anna. She writes, Hi, Lizzie and Dan. Thank you for such an interesting and engaging podcast. I always enjoy it. I do want to provide feedback on your question about airplane etiquette. Through your discussion, you came to the conclusion that asking the person sitting on the aisle to stand when you needed to get up was treading into bad etiquette territory. I think you missed an important component here, gender. I'm a young woman, and if I have to climb over a man sitting next to me, it puts my body too close for comfort to his and can be very uncomfortable. The same goes for when you are on public transportation, sitting on the inside, needing to exit. I've had people, mostly men, simply shift their legs to give me the room to get out. This leaves me with either the choice of saying, excuse me, could you please stand up so I can get out, or deciding which direction will be less uncomfortable to face while I scooch out. I understand some people have trouble with mobility, and I would always accommodate someone who told me they had trouble standing. But you should never tell a woman it's bad etiquette to move past someone in a safe, dignified way. Thank you, Anna. This piece of feedback brings up a couple of thoughts for me. Yeah. One is the thought that that you and I often return to, Lizzie Post, which is that safety trumps etiquette. And if you ever find yourself in a situation where you feel uncomfortable or where something really is feeling awkward to you, I think it's important that you are assertive and that you set boundaries and ask people for what you need and, and conduct yourself in a way that you ultimately feel that your 
respect for others is also mirrored with a respect for yourself. Absolutely. You could say to that person who just moves their knees over when instead of getting up, you could say, I'm sorry, but I'm actually uncomfortable climbing over. If you're able, do you mind standing up? And then if they say, I'm sorry, I really can't, you say, "Okay, no worries. And then choose whichever direction you feel most comfortable moving. We often say, no, this is like one of those. We get this question all the time. We get this question all the time. Which way to face when you're leaving an aisle? It's often, often because you are in long rows at a theater and there's very little space to climb out. And it's too much to ask seven people to get up out of the way for you now. On occasion, based on all kinds of reasons, that might be what has to happen. But in this case, you know, you're on an airplane and we're in that space where it's okay if you don't feel comfortable for you to politely assert your discomfort with what's being offered to you and ask if there's a possibility for what you would like, which is the person to stand up. By the way, this isn't totally a gendered issue. Men could be uncomfortable crawling over other men. Women could be uncomfortable crawling over other women. It just really doesn't actually have to be just a a men-women thing. Because it came up, I also have to honor our Aunt Peggy, who stewarded this tradition for many years, and say that the answer that she used to give very consistently in a theater, the way that you face when you're making your way down an aisle is towards the stage. And this seems maybe a little counterintuitive in terms of the the person that you're stepping over. (laughs) But the idea was that you honored the actors, the performers. You kept your attention towards them and has a practical benefit of it leaves the seat backs in front of you there. If you do stumble Stumble. or trip or fall or need that extra support, you can hold on to those seat backs in front of you. I don't recommend using them like a railing because people are sitting in those seats. Especially not on an airplane where they actually move. But they are there to help you and it's better to hold on to those than to the poor people who are sitting behind you if you're facing forward. Anyway, that is a question we often get asked. I just wanted (laughs) to touch on that also. Anna, we hope that this gives a little broader perspective on on why we give the advice we give and also the contingency of when you, you need that advice to be different, how to handle it. Thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates. Please, please, please keep them coming. You can send your comment or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for the postscript that we promised you at the start of today's show, where we talk a little bit about our great, great grandmama, Emily Post. Damn post setting, take us away. Okay, so I, I you can't say take us away because I Hi. love to give a keynote talk about Emily Post. Oh. <laughs> and usually when I get to do a keynote, they're about 40, 45 minutes. Sometimes I get as much as an hour and I can go on for several hours Damn about this setting. indomitable woman. Keep it short. <laughs> that is better advice at the start of this postscript. Um, I, I, I want to start with a couple of the, the key details. Emily Post was born October 27th, 1872. And she lived until 1959. So she lived a good, long, healthy, wonderful, vibrant life. We have pictures of her with her grandson, Mm -hmm. our grandfather, Poppy Bill Post, playing on the beaches near her house in Mm -hmm. Martha's Vineyard. Wonderful reel-to-reel family videos that your father digitized so that we've still got them today. The end of those videos show her playing with her great-great-grandchildren as— Her great-grandchildren. Her great-grandchildren, pardon me, I I wish she'd been playing with us, (laughs) but no, 
Um, and and one of those images is her sort of rolling around in the grass while her great grandson, our oldest uncle Alan, bounces literally bounces around on a large beach, beach ball. ball. He throws it at her at one point. It's really funny. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it like hits her and she just laughs. <laughs> she was a believer in floor time. She loved playing with children. Yep. Anyone who thinks a yoga ball is a new invention, I challenge you to watch <laughs> old videos of kids playing with giant beach balls. <laughs> um, there is a delightful image of her at the end of those home videos holding a little baby who's in a dress and a bonnet. And for years, we thought this was my mother. And it turned out, no, actually, it's your father. It's my father. Who, it's christening or something like that. Well, all babies were dressed in dresses through the first year, year of, of their, their life. life. Yeah. And he he, um, he looks so cute. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Emily Post uh enjoyed a long and really rich life. She really did. She was the daughter of Bruce Price, Bruce and Josephine Price. Bruce Price was an architect of some note. We've talked about him on this show before. He was the architect who designed Tuxedo Park, home of the tuxedo. (laughs) Go back and find the postscript on the history of the tuxedo. It's so much fun. It's one of my favorite stories. (laughs) Emily grew up uh, attending the social club at Tuxedo Park. It's Mm -hmm. where she learned a lot of the manners that she would later codify Mm -hmm. in the 1922 edition of Etiquette. Bruce Price was um, incredibly close with his daughter. Emily was a daddy's girl. Mm -hmm. She loved and doted on her father and um, learned a lot from him. I think that a lot of her intellectual capabilities and capacities came from a very close relationship with her father. Her mother was also a character of some seriousness (laughs) and was apparently the businesswoman who really guided the family's finances and stewarded the business that was – the Price family architectural firm. I'm always amazed, especially when I read through Laura Claridge's biography of Emily Post, the sense of character that Emily had, the sense of self, and that she too battled a lot with the norms and standards of the day, and yet being a very smart and vivacious and interesting young woman. She battled a lot of that in her younger years. But in her her older years, remember that she wrote Etiquette when she was 50. She wasn't writing this in her 20s as she was navigating her own marriage and family life. She was writing this after she had been divorced, after she had traveled across the country by car, after she had published numerous romance novels. I mean, she really was a very accomplished and experienced woman by the time she came around to Etiquette. She was already a single mother who had lost a son by the time she wrote Etiquette. Absolutely. Her life was filled with great ups and some real challenges and challenges that I think really shaped and molded her character. And I think that you're really wise to remember that the book Etiquette is a result of all of that, all of those experiences that she brought to her understanding of human behavior, that she had a familiarity with the social codes and customs of her time. But she also brought a real substance, a real um, quality of character that informed – And an opinion. And opinion. (laughs) I mean, don't ever forget that Emily Post, if anything, was opinionated. (laughs) The other thing that I really want to leave everyone with, and and as I warned at the start, I could go on and on. I could talk about Emily for several podcasts worth of of content. But 
your father really drove home a point to me that when Etiquette was published in 1922, that in many ways she became an overnight success. Yeah. That she began to enjoy a level of fame and notoriety that she hadn't known when she was writing romance novels right. or her book about a cross-country road trip, that the book itself was a phenomenon. They couldn't print it fast enough. Right. They kept issuing more and more printings in its first year of publication, each one bigger than the one before, and that – it wasn't long before she had a nationally syndicated radio show that made her a fixture in homes across America and that she was an Oprah Winfrey in her day. She was a, yes. a mass media figure. She was somebody who was very familiar to many, many people as the arbiter of social life and that this transition happened relatively late in her life at a time when she was ready for it and mm -hmm. she embraced it and she played that role with great relish <laughs> for a, a good part of her adult life and through those years as a grandmother. And I want to thank everyone out there for allowing Lizzie and I to reminisce and <laughs> indulge in some reflections on our grandmother as we approach her birthday. Well, we like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world, and it can come in so many forms. And today's comes from my friend Sue, who was reflecting upon her experience um, during the eclipse and found herself really grateful to one of her fellow eclipse watchers. My salute has to do with the solar eclipse. A friend and I were down on the waterfront. I was unable to find the special glasses that were required, so I made some cereal box and a piece of paper. I had one on the ground and then the box, and we kept checking it and checking it. Then this stranger, young man, came over and offered us a brand-new pair of glasses he could tell that we kept getting up and using our cereal box. And I said, oh, that is so sweet of you. I know you had to purchase these. Can I pay you for them? And he said, no. And he said, our kid is just too young. He's not going to use it. I just thought, what the kindness of strangers. It's the afternoon. How many people who did have glasses would walk up to different groups of people or single them to see, observe the eclipse with the glasses. They didn't keep them, but, you know, offered. It was a real sharing experience. And I just want to thank that young man for sharing with a couple of us <laughs> older generation. It was just truly appreciated. Sue, thank you so much for sharing that. It is so wonderful when strangers around us can surprise us. Thank you for listening, and thank you to everyone who sent us something. You can send us your next question, comment, or salute to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, I'm at Daniel underscore Post. And I'm at Lizzie A. Post. On Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. You can help us out. If you love the show, subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. Our show was edited by Chris Albertine. Thanks, Thank you, Chris. Chris. I'd like to be more thoughtful. If I only knew what it meant. <laughs>